Around uh, Christmas time last year, I realised that September 2019 would mark 80 years since the start of the Second World War and thought it might be appropriate if we marked it in some small way in the Round the Archives podcast. After a bit of thought as to quite how to do this, I decided that I might look at some of the more significant BBC series from the archives that once attempted to tell some of the stories that were less well known and which focused in some way on the more human interest aspects of living in an occupied country or a high security prison camp deep in enemy territory or the Far East. You're probably already way ahead of me here when I tell you that I picked Secret Army, called it and Tenko to examine, and decided that I'd better work my way through all three series in order to understand each of them more fully, even though wiser heads than mine had already thoroughly explored them, both here and in other places. This, of course, meant a lot of early mornings watching an episode a day to get through the 102 50-minute episodes that made up the entire runs of these three series, two of which I'd not seen any of since their original transmission and one of which I I don't think I'd ever seen any of at all apart from on clip shows. It's been a fascinating and sometimes quite misery inducing journey but there's some great television drama in there lots of which I hope to revisit at some point to explore in more detail and I hope you'll agree that it was worth doing as I explore the BBC at war. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Codenamed Archives. Welcome to episode 39 of... Rally Archives. Yes, indeed. Which also happens to be the first episode of our fourth season, although I hadn't yes. really noticed. No. I'm not going to regenerate or anything mm. like that. Okay. But Martin's intro mm-hmm. may have given you the clue mm-hmm. that because this is episode 39... Because it's September... 2019 and it's 80 years since the commencement of World War Two. That's our theme for this issue. Mm-hmm. So Martin will do a mammoth article, he will. which will be split into three. Yes. And in between, we'll do the silly bits. We will. <laughs> we should also say it's it's the BBC at war. Yes. So we're concentrating on BBC shows mm-hmm. set in World War Two. Yes. Three dramas and two comedies. Yes. So you get a little bit of light relief in between. In other news, uh, we're on Podchaser, aren't we? Are. we? Yes. Which is a lovely little website where you can track people across all their podcast appearances. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like IMDb for podcasts. Mm-hmm. So if you like us or any of our sort of guest speakers, yes. once all the data is put on there, and it mm-hmm. will take a while to sort it all out, yes, uh, you can just click on, on the people and find out what they've done elsewhere. Okay. So... Mm-hmm. If you click on Paul, for example, you can find all the Shy Life podcasts. Yeah. If you click on me or you, you can mm-hmm. find our appearance on Looks Unfamiliar and so mm-hmm. forth. So yes. it all joins up. Yes. And did we have a correction last time? Uh, a minor correction only in that the picture of the cats in the Animal Quackers book is of the stray kitty strollers, not the stray alley strollers. Though you can't really see that on the picture. It's only because we watched the episode. Yes that we actually knew what they were called. But let's kick off then, mm-hmm. as Martin Holmes begins his magnum opus mm-hmm. with a look at... Secret Army. 
Everybody, it seems, enjoys a good war. Well, obviously, nobody at all enjoys a war at all. And very few, if any, could really be referred to as good. But that's not a great start, is it? Let's try again. What I'm trying to say is that, retrospectively, viewers do seem to enjoy a war once it's all over. The shooting has stopped, and everyone has started to pick up the pieces and begun the tricky process of rebuilding society enough for them to reconsider what happened and start to look at it as a source of entertainment, an opportunity to seek out some stories to tell, look for some heroes, and lord a few heroics. British cinema in the 1950s was chock-full of blockbusters telling stories of soldiers, airmen, sailors, submariners, plucky communities surviving against the odds, miraculous escapes, tales of derring-do, and people doing extraordinary things against terrifying odds, both the survivors and the victims, all of whom did their bit, often with the assistance of little Johnny Mills and his ever-so-stiff upper lip. And so it was with television, although with the more intimate relationship television can have with its audience, and perhaps because it generally had longer to tell its stories, there was time to take a more balanced, even-handed approach and try to view things from both sides, especially as the result was already known. Everybody knew who the winners and losers were, and the audience could relax in the knowledge that everything was going to turn out fine. Or was it? It turns out that some of the most gripping and unpredictable stories were still waiting to be told, often from a far more unusual perspective, and often within environments that were both unexpected and which might be considered far less victorious than the stories that were being told in the movies from a couple of decades earlier. Television started to turn its focus away from the obvious success stories of the war and begin to talk about the apparent failures where people were placed into impossible situations and somehow managed to come through on the other side. Stories which also managed to lift the lid on the motivations of the people people who were considered the enemy in those years and shine a light on the human beings committing what were still the harsh and brutal atrocities, many of which were still vivid, raw and burning memories of many viewers who were still living when the programmes were being broadcast. So many stories of the Second World War have been told by television, but I'm going to focus on just three of the best, which were produced by BBC television in the 1970s and 1980s, and all of which tell, in their own unique way, another side of the story. The first is Secret Army, a 50-ish minute drama series created by BBC producer Gerard Glaister and broadcast across three series between 1977 and 1979. This series is already covered in great detail in a previous edition of Round the Archives, episode 25 if you're looking, in a piece by the author of the definitive work on the series, Andy Priestner, whose toes I do not intend stepping upon. However, having worked my way through the entire three series, I thought that I could at least share my thoughts upon what is still considered to be one of the best dramas of that type the BBC ever produced. These are the stories of Lifeline, an escape route for Allied airmen who have been shot down by the Luftwaffe and are trying to get home to Britain. It's set in Belgium, mostly around the Café Candide, run by Albert Foire, from where the Lifeline itself is mostly managed by Lisa Colbert, codename Yvette, as played with quiet determination by Jan Francis, who by day works as a nurse for Dr Pascal Keldermans, as played with suitably fruity gravitas by Valentine Dial in proper acting mode. Women seem to be the perfect cover for Lifeline, as both the café's singer, waitress and Albert's mistress, Monique Duchamp, Angela Richards, and the plucky, determined Natalie Chantron, Juliette Hammond-Hill, are also heavily involved in this often fatal activity. Also, we should give a nod to Ron Pember, who quietly gets on with life as the fixer, radio operator and all-round nice guy, Alain, who gets into far more perilous situations than is good for either him or his family back at his farm growing the vegetables that he supplies to the café. 
During the first year, Lifeline do appear to have more failures than successes. Indeed, although at one point it is mentioned that they've got 200 airmen home, hardly anyone seems to survive the journey during that first season. In fact, Curtis, the RAF agent John Curtis, played by Christopher Neem, is an escaped airman who then gets sent back to Belgium by Anthony Ainley in the first episode, and the rest of the season seems to involve more airmen getting killed by their supposed rescuers than getting down the line at all. The always magnificent Bernard Hepton is ostensibly the star of the series, but quite often he's given very little to do other than look worried. Happily, Bernard Hepton's looking worried acting is worth watching, and his character takes more of a central, brutal, and occasionally quite tragic role in proceedings as time goes by. Despite becoming the character most associated with the Secret Army, and the character after which the brief but memorable sequel series Kessler is named, Clifford Rose as Gestapo Chief Kessler makes far less impact at first than you might have expected. Although the memorable image of his white hair rim glasses and emotionless manner does tend to chill you to the bone whenever he appears. Sometimes, however, his endless quest to break the lifeline and basically round everyone up, put them against the wall and have them shot, does have a little of the futility of Inspector Gerard in The Fugitive about it, as our heroes keep on getting away by the skin of their teeth by wading through the corpses of their allies. That is, of course, a far too flippant reading of what is an astonishingly chilling performance, which simply through the knowledge of that he is very much based upon the real-life actions of actual human monsters stays with you long long after the episodes and the series are over. Of course it's giving nothing away given that he gets a sequel series with his name in the title to point out that by and large he actually gets away with it. That he gets away with it due to the greed of an American play by John Ratzenberger long before he played the ineptly self-obsessed postman Cliff Clavin in Cheers is an irony that does not escape me. And some of those crimes are monstrous. Although fairly often the awful results are simply because of people having the fear of the awful knowledge of what he will do to them if he catches them and taking matters into their own hands instead. After a year, Jan Francis left the series and eventually ended up spending several years being just good friends with a pop star with a terrifying blonde perm. Right in the middle of the second series, there is a Christmas episode which comes as something of a surprise, also featuring in the second series as a mildly farcical episode about missing and forged paintings that seems to have been a major inspiration for the plotting of the sitcom Alo Alo, which owes a lot to Secret Army as its inspiration and, quite understandably, thoroughly vexed the cast of the original drama series. Meanwhile, the Luftwaffe colonel with a heart, Mayor Brandt, played with excellent subtlety by Michael Culver, loses his wife and son to Allied bombing, and is really never the same after that. Also, some of his friends and acquaintances get implicated in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and things go downhill for him fairly swiftly after this, and he does not return for the third series. Series 2 ends with the D-Day landings and the imminent liberation of Belgium, so you might think that this story of escape routes and double dealing might be drawing to a close, but you'd be wrong. The series that I most remember from first broadcast is the third and final one, when the Germans are fleeing Belgium and leaving the Belgians to sort things out for themselves, and therefore those who have been living double lives appearing to be collaborators are rounded up with the actual collaborators, and things do start to get memorably tricky for a while. Human beings, and what they are capable of doing to each other in the name of righteous indignation, is a strong theme of this particular run, and because we've got to know our heroes and realise just what injustices are being taken out upon them, those episodes remain strong and almost impossible to endure. From the very first episodes, Secret Army demonstrates the claustrophobic terror of living under occupation with the second episode Sergeant on the Run, excellently showcasing this claustrophobia and fear during a raid on the cafe, with eyes all watching and nobody knowing quite who to trust and managing to find in its economic storytelling whole new levels of bleakness. This is truly gripping stuff, as if by gripped you mean clumped in a vice with the whole world applying pressure. Later episodes such as Bait, 
rate are very much an examination of what human beings like rats when backed into corners are capable of doing to one another. Over the course of series one, the real wartime stock footage and the moments of ranking competence, which suggest on occasions that Lifeline do far more harm than good for dramatic purposes, despite the conversations suggesting otherwise, perhaps the most hurtful loss in that series is that of Herr Gruber, the kindly bank manager who has been taking dreadful risks to assist Lifeline. He is portrayed with immense kindliness and dignity by James Bree, who gets a lot of stick for his performance as the security chief in The War Games, Patrick Troughton's epic final Doctor Who story, but is rather wonderful in this. With Curtis heading back to Blighty at the end of Series 1, and Series 2 beginning with the loss of Lisa, ironically, to Allied bombing, and his frustrated disabled wife having died in a fall down the stairs, leaving him free to carry on with Monique, we find Albert stepping up to become the mastermind behind Lifeline for the remainder of the series, which is just as well as they are constantly being infiltrated by Nazis posing as British aircrew or communists posing as pianists, and despite his endless funding and supply problems, he can and does trust no one. Meanwhile, we are treated to a rather more even-handed portrayal of the Germans than is usual in British tales of wartime, because as they spend more time at the restaurant and tensely interact with our heroes, and despite being an utterly ruthless psychopath, Kessler is shown to have a more human side, and the more sensitive Mayor Brandt is even allowed an ordinary family life before his own downfall, and more allied bombing raids devour him. Just before things start to get really bad for our heroes before the end of this series, there's even time amidst the tension and mayhem for that particular feature of almost every drama series, that Christmas episode of sorts, which features that eternal child star of the era, Keith Jane, and goes some way towards proving that even the master miser and occasional killer Albert has a soft heart. You also get to see Brian Glover playing a Nazi soldier, which came as some surprise as me in a, in a sensitive yet brutal episode dealing with the fate of a child suddenly orphaned who is living during such evil times and the influences acting upon all of the people involved. The penultimate episode of Series 2 has so many factions out to get our heroes that you begin to find yourself rooting for the people that you really shouldn't, and perhaps, oddly, this is one of the few times that the far end of the lifeline itself is revealed, as opposed to the smaller world of the now restaurant Candide as part of the chain as the coast is reached and the aircrew are rescued by dinghy, albeit in return for arms for the communist arm of the resistance. This means that the viewer also has very mixed feelings when watching the last episode of series 2, Day of Wrath, especially with regard to the fate of one of the not-as-bad-as-the-other supposed bad guys, which, if you've seen that particular episode, you'll probably understand. Series 3 starts off tense and quickly goes stark, staring, terrifying, quite frankly. Things almost immediately start to get jolly brutal on both sides of the fighting, especially when Major Bradley, played by Paul Shelley, gets involved. These are stories set in the last days of the war in Belgium, and sometimes the overkill by our heroes seems a little too much when you consider the ordinary German troops biting the dust, although, of course, we must ask whether, as occupiers representing a totalitarian regime, any of them are completely blameless. The difference between the rabid Nazis and the ordinary German soldiers are usually very blurred, especially when Hollywood is prepared to tar them all with the same brush, but the distinction is barely addressed when there's wholesale slaughtering to be done. And amidst the excellent use of genuine black and white footage, because it's still surprising to me that the Second World War in the real world actually happened in full colour, some eras just feel eternally black and white in my mind, spotting who the fickle finger of fate has marked down for the chop is becoming fairly straightforward by this stage. It's everyone! Meanwhile, during the first half of the series, Bernard Hepton is off somewhere being theatrical, so Albert gets sidelined, locked up, and all of his performances are shot on film before the studio recordings, and Monique is left to step up to the plate and take some of the worst risks so that you do start to wonder whether anyone will make it through to the end and survive the war, especially with the free Belgians taking their revenge upon Lo 
those they think are collaborators in some of the most memorable scenes in the entire series. I, I won't spoil those for you, other than to mention that some of the characters' fates seem far more unfair than others, but that's life, I suppose. You, you might want to stick your fingers in your ears for a few seconds if you don't want to know to ha what happens to one of them in particular. Because, ironically, by not helping him and accepting his POWs into custody, it is a British soldier who unwittingly ultimately gets Van Durken, the German pacifist barge owner who never really wanted to involve himself and who lost his wife to one of Kessler's interrogations in an early episode, killed when a squadron of regrouping Nazis find him harbouring two deserters. This seems more bitterly ironic, with him only recently having helpfully already pointed the finger for the liberating troops at the fleeing Obersturmfuhrer Kessler as well. And once rounded up and locked up under an assumed identity, Kessler's revenge on Reinhardt is just as brutal and unjust, as he manipulates a court-martial into getting this thoroughly decent-seeming decorated German airman, a man who apparently stood for everything Kessler himself did not, to pay the ultimate price. The final irony is, of course, that the last escapee lifeline assist is Kessler himself, as it is his mistress, Madeline, who approaches Monique to get papers so that she can start a new life with her brother by escaping the ravages of post-war Europe. All in all, a satisfyingly bittersweet end to an excellent series that lifted the lid on what was, at the time, one of the more untold stories of the Second World War, and to which we ought to give a quiet nod of appreciation, not least because it's a series that has Anthony Ainley as a guest actor in the first episode, and John Ratzenberger, the future Cliff Clavin, as a guest star in the last. Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. And he will be back yes. fairly soon. He will. Now, uh, we'll we'll take the first comedy. Yes. Which will be an episode of Dad's Army. Mm -hmm. uh, we must admit, we're a little giggly at the start, aren't yes, we? Yes, Because Warren joined us on the sofa. Yes. And it all went a bit wrong at first, it didn't did. it? It did. What you're going to hear is take two. Yes, because take one... Somebody was looking at the wrong week. I, I was they? looking at the wrong page on BBC Genome. Mm. And then just as I realised it, the batteries ran out in the yeah. recorder. So mm -hmm. it's just as well. We stopped. We stopped because <laughs> yeah. I'd have had no article if no, we carried on. Again, so. yeah. mm. But anyway, we now we travel back to September 1969 to look at... Dad's Army. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr Hitler? If you think we're on the run We are the boys who will stop your little game We are the boys who will make you think again Cause who do you think you are kidding Mr Hitler If you think old England's done Mr. Brown goes off to town on the A21 But he comes home each evening and he's ready with his gun So who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think old England's done Hello, Lisa. Hello, Warren. Hello. <laughs> Shall we start Hello. again? Yes. yes. We just had to stop because again Cause I got completely got the, the wrong date on Gino. Yes. So let's start again. Oh. Yes. It's Thursday, the eleventh of September this time. Yeah. It's, uh, and what, and put, what happened? Eh? Several years before that. Well, thirty years 
and a couple and of weeks, well, a well, week and a say, half, and, and a week. But ten days, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's the outbreak of World War Two. It's the second, I think. And B- <laughs> yeah. BBC One starts off with international golf. Mm. Okay. Getting in the swing of things. Um, 72 hole stroke play, apparently. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there's telly we well- found the level already, haven't we? We haven't even got past the first program. Then there's Telly Welly. Okay. This is Wales, isn't it? Why is yeah. it Wales? <laughs> Why is the Welsh listing? Yeah. No, it's not the Welsh listing. It's it's the BBC One listing, oh, honest. Okay. Telly Welly, a okay. program for the young, first shown on BBC Wales. Okay. Then Pogleswood, the Princess and the Jewel. Okay. Um then the news with Bert Ford. As the, the weatherman, weatherman. Bert Ford's always got too many O's in his he name. Has. He's like Lee John, isn't yeah. he? Then they close down and come mm. back with more international golf stroking later but on. If they've, they've closed down for one hour and and seven, seven minutes. minutes. <laughs> Was there any point? That's for tea break, probably. Probably. Uh, yeah. uh, play school. The story is Tico Ooh. the Squirrel by Ron Riches. Okay. Jack and Ori is Kenneth Williams, mm. yeah. the founding mm. of Evil Hold School by Nikolai Tolstoy. Okay. Lesson four in which the That's boys. That's not going to be heavy, is it? Lesson four in which the boys and girls are kidnapped. <laughs> Next week, War and Peace. Uh, white horses. Uh, house house arrest for Othello. Oh, white horses. Said, okay. Oh, you being a horse? Show me a galloping across the beach. Um, <laughs> The railway. Ch- you told me not to. The railway children. Uh, Still got Gordon Gostelow in got, it. It's got Gordon Gostelow and John Ringham. And a bit of Jenny Agatha. Directed mm-hmm. by Julia Smith. Mm-hmm. Magic Roundabout. Yay. Eric Thompson. Mm-hmm. Bert Ford again as Weatherman on the news. Okay. Still Do you pl- think he's just. A, you say as Weatherman. Is that like as Inspector? Yeah. I'm on the buses. Uh, London Nationwide. Mm-hmm. Michael Barrett. Bob Langley. Uh, mm-hmm. The Newcomers. Uh, Jimmy's chances of going to university begin to look doubtful. Peter Metcalf takes up residence at the Bull and his ex-landlady spreads some malicious gossip. Mm. Produced mm. by Bill Sellers. Okay. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack Watling's in that, you know. Yes. Mm. Mm. Uh, Top of the Pops. Mm. Introduced by Pete Murray, who okay. has just come back from a spot of sun worship on the beaches of Ibiza. Okay, Ibiza. Ibiza. Whatever. Ibiza. It's like way Dad's Army, the armoured might of Lance Corporal Jones, mm-hmm. uh, in which our heroes add an armoured car to their fighting strength. And muddling through with Dad's Army, pages mm-hmm. six, seven, eight, and nine. Okay. What are you laughing at, Warren? <laughs> Lisa yawning. I did. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you open the title, it's brilliant timing. Softly, softly, recovery by Elwyn Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, he never contributes much to soft. PC software. Rivers, Michael Sheard. Yay! So there you go, the news. Wojek, a realistic series from Canada. <laughs> Implying that all other series from Canada <laughs> aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, British by choice. Oh, oh dear. Uh, Cliff Mitchellmore. Is he on holiday? Meets the German Welsh. 400,000 Germans were held in British prison camps during the war. An astonishing number, 20,000, decided to stay on. Oh, Tom, that's lovely. So there you go. <laughs> Heinz Palava runs a pub. <laughs> oh, please, no. no. Heinz Pleaver. <laughs> oh, do please, you're just making it up. 
Heinz Jones. Yeah. He's known in Pontypool as Taffy. Okay, no. there you go. 24 hours, eye line, um, and, the weather. and that's it. Yeah. But, um, as we say, this is the first episode of Dad's Army Made in Colour. Yes. But not the first to be transmitted in colour, because no. we're in September. Yes. And colour doesn't come to BBC One for a little a little while yet. For another few months. Yes, indeed. Uh, but we open um, in the church hall, yard, not in the church hall, in the yard. In the yard, yes. Where they've got their respirators out. Yeah, and you can't hear what anybody's saying. Now, Warren, th- this was um, instantly reminded you of something, didn't it, Warren? Yes. You've, you've acted in a respirator, haven't I've you? I've acted in a respirator, and in that wonderful performance in Genesis of the Wogans, I yes. believe, yes. But that respirator belonged to you. How on earth have you got a respirator? Uh, we found it in the shed. <laughs> as you do so probably it was like deadly with asbestos or something like that <laughs> we both wore that I know we did you've <laughs> never you... done us any harm <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yes the, uh, Captain Mannering is giving a lecture in his gas mask mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wondered whether people at home were turning their tellies up because mm-hmm. there, there's a sort of ongoing gag that nobody can hear what anybody else is Same. saying. Yeah, I got distracted by all the sandbags in the background. Did you see the huge, huge, huge? Somebody was like, must have spent all day stacking those up. Um, and you said about how John the Measurer was a lady killer. Oh, he's so suave in his takes his gas mark off with such style, and then just flattened put, his hair, flattened his hair down. You could almost reaching for his gin and tonic and lighting a cigarette isn't it well I noticed that Walker started doing his hair immediately as well well then so did Mannering Mannering flattened his hair down as well which one (laughs) (laughs) but um, uh, Mannering gives a demonstration with a grocer's cheese cutter yes and Warren you said to me about um, the corner shop cutting cheese you remember that I remember that you used to go into our corner shop the Noble's corner shop in Cranbourne yeah and had a little chiller it wasn't like delicatessen it was just a chiller unit with a load of cheeses in and sausages and things like that and they used to cut the cheese with the wire I remember that nobody tried to attack you with it nobody tried to attack me Pike it turns out doesn't like cheese yeah so, well, they start. He starts talking about how you could decapitate somebody, couldn't yeah. you? And actually, I was watching that, and I watched an episode of Falls World yeah. about a week or so ago. And there's a bit in that with some cheese wire, and somebody gets their head right. cut off. Because apparently, it was a um, tip that they gave the um, the Home Guard. Oh, right. If you're the invaded, homemade weapons. Mm. Put cheese wire across the trees at head level. And then the Germans will ride into it. Oh, which which appears in uh, the Guns of Navarone. Yeah. Yeah. But Pike doesn't like cheese, but so he shares that with Colin Baker. I think Colin Baker is actually allergic to cheese, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. You know, I once heard him ordering lunch, and he stressed the people about three or four times. Please do not put put cheese in it because I'm allergic to cheese on all my chips. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, the pie though. Hodges appears and he's now chief ARP warden mm-hmm. but he hasn't got his white hat yet it, no no it, it, his helmet will change colour later on mm. but um, is that a continuity thing or is that just the fact that I just think they hadn't got one, by, they that, got one by, yeah. that, by that point but then it ties in with the fact that it takes them half of, more than half of the first series to get any uniform That's or true. weapons yeah 
It's just the, the the time it takes the British government to get a shift on. But they they talk about how Hodges has got f- filthy fingernails. Yes, because he's a grocer, isn't yeah. he? A green grocer, which you know isn't on. No. Is it? Yeah. Awfully so, common, as as Sergeant <laughs> Wilson said. So we then cut to Jones at work in his butcher's shop and he's got a long line of admiring ladies isn't he yeah. well, some uh, more admiring than others although he does seem to be quite scared of them he, well yeah. yeah I think he's glad of that counter between them yes I, I have had many times at work where I've been glad to have a counter between me and the person I'm serving and the, lady, and the, and the ladies lining up <laughs> yeah sometimes but Mrs Fox makes her a first appearance yeah. she does. as well in fact this is an episode with an awful lot of firsts in yes. it so hmm. it's quite a good one to do, but everybody sort of um, is after his sausages, aren't they? Yeah. Because he's got under the counter sausages. Yes. So they can have um, a little bit of meat, a bit of um, corned beef, and a sausage. Mm. I don't know who gets the sausage. <laughs> but, That's not funny. It's not funny at all. <laughs> like... But he, he's being bribed with like his favourite tobacco and yeah. cake and, and cake stuff and like stuff. that. Mm. Mrs. Fox claims she's got everything today and mm. and gives him a demonstration. And she mentions her husband. Yes. Yes. She does. yes. So the husband obviously dies That's during, so or she does the, something to him. Yeah, yeah. During the se- during the series. Feeds him a sausage. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next lady along's very flirty. He's, that's the one he seems quite scared of, Jones, because she's very flirty. The one with the teeth. The one with the teeth. Yeah. And then, yeah. then we get a, an appearance of, of a brawn. Yeah. Later on, later on, we've got the monster brawn yeah. and, the, and the village fate, but. Uh, do you, do you know what a brawn is, Lisa? It's just brains, isn't it, or something? Well, it's not think... brains, is it? It's sort of... I don't know, it's just it's bits. like jelly. It's jelly, it's jelly with bits, bits in, in it, yeah. yeah. But Walker, oh. Walker appears, mm-hmm. and he, he wants to see uh, Jones on some urgent private business. Yes. Which they immediately cut to film on. Yes, because they go into the cold room. Yeah. Now, I was watching this I, we've got um at work we've got a, f- a freezer and uh, several fridges and certain things you have to dispose of in the freezer and i never really like going in the freezer very much you go in there and just do you put not it have in a plunger on the, the other door you can push the door yes yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it it doesn't get locked i just don't like it in there no it's, they're claustrophobic places yeah. aren't they it's, um it, and the other week I could do hear you, do you turn all frosty very quickly not, not quite <laughs> as quickly as that thought, how cold was it in there yeah that's Is very cold permafrost level yeah but it did crunch under my foot the other week the, the floor with the ice so very slippy aren't they it can be very slippy yes well as you say one of the reasons it's done on film mm. is that we keep cutting between Jones and Walker yeah who's you know their moustaches are getting increasingly iced up it almost looks like Walker is ageing it does, it does yeah. 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 Um, but Walker's um, come up with an idea Thinking, sorry you mm. just saying that reminds me of the first episode Yes, where they're all done up and yes. he does look remarkably like a character mm. in that doesn't yes. he Yeah. but yeah Walker suggests that um, Jones's van could be used as official transport and basically mm. they could get the petrol coupons so Walker could also use it for la- for less official purposes, yes. shall we say? Mm-hmm. Turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear the page turn. <laughs> I'll put an echo on it. Don't worry. <laughs> Evening but, or daily. Mm. But back in back in the yard, uh, Jones's van is now being demonstrated with mm-hmm. with with the pl- platoon. So, do you think they filmed that 
in front of an audience with the van because they'd have to use the Blue Peter studio, wouldn't they? Well, I don't know what studio it is, but, yeah, I mean, the van does actually run in studio, yeah. not in this scene, but later on, um, when they when they sort of drive it off. But, yeah, they, they, they've got it in there, and, yeah, no 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 problem for the for the audience, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> Unless it's carbon monoxide, well, I think. We were watching a Sergeant Cork with the yes, we were. involving carbon monoxide yeah. poisoning the other yeah, somebody day. Somebody got so. bumped off by carbon mon- monoxide. But it's again first appearance of Jones's van, B U C eight five two. Now it actually dates back to nineteen thirty five. The van does. Mm-hmm. Um, so in historical terms, it's fairly new. Well, that's the point. Mm. Um, it's meant to be only about five years old in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in the story. But in real life, it's a hell of a lot older than that. Because it was originally found abandoned um, in South London. Okay. Uh, by a chap called Fred Wilmington, mm-hmm. who owned a company that supplied vehicles to the BBC. He contacted the police to see if anybody owned it and was allowed to claim it and take it away. Oh, wow. So it, it is literally just chance that he came across it and and thus it ends up here. So you must have done some background into that because you don't just go along and say, oh, I like the looks of that van, I'll have it. It must have been dirty and dusty and they thought, mm. But it was in a bit of a state. It took oh. a lot of time and money to restore it. So it, <laughs> it didn't look like it, it looks here. Um, though nobody seems to have any pictures of it as it looked like when it, when it was only, found. In that case, and they were glad to get rid of it. Out <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, you know, 30 plus years old yeah. when it actually makes its appearance on telly. It looks so, really good. So yeah, yeah, yeah they've done some good work on it. Yeah. But yeah, we, we get this whole uh, routine of the drill to embark and disembark. Wow, that's that's mm-hmm. classic, isn't it? And you said the crates they had to get up on to get in looked very flimsy, didn't they? Looked they looked very flimsy indeed, yeah. But they stood up quite well when they got out of it. They did rock a little bit. They rocked but... I was waiting for one of them to nearly teeter over the edge when they came. But yeah, it was. they never. They didn't look that substantial, did no. they? <laughs> but Jones does his num 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 <laughs> impression of an engine going. <laughs> and then we get the whole open two, three, out two, three, bang, bang two, two, three, three bang, bang two, two, three. three. Which you also get in the film as well, yeah. don't you? Because mm. some of this is is reused in, in the film version, although it's a different van, apparently. You said the roof nearly comes off at one point yeah. when, they've, when they've stuck their... Yeah, it sort of rattles, doesn't it, when they get the guns back out. But I, I like um, Mannering saying to Wilson, you never cease to amaze me. Mm. So Wilson says, I'm as keen as you, I just don't, don't show like showing it. it. Yeah. Mm. Which, so. is, which is true all the way through, isn't it? Because yeah. he's quite quite literally lights his uh, hides his light under a bushel doesn't he mm-hmm. but um the whole thing about turning the uh, van into gas mm-hmm. um in september 1939 apparently that would have cost you 70 quid that's a heck of a load of money which in 2018 money would be about four thousand pound wow wow so yeah this this is this is a huge a huge thing we'll be doing that again soon yeah, I see. I see. So next scene, we're driving. <laughs> we're, we're driving along in a country lane. Yeah, and um, yes, with some CSO, but there is some film work as well. Yeah, and the CSO is quite obvious again, isn't it? So. Yeah. Um, but the pipe feeding the gas gets punctured. Gets punctured by mm. Jones's bayonet. 
Shocker there. There's a shocker. Um, they start laughing. Mm. Which uh, is, I don't understand why they were there in a well-ventilated van. Yeah. They're not going to get gassed, are they? Well, mm. I don't know. It's not, it's not a huge hole. So first of all, Walker lights his fag and then there's a flame from the yeah. pipe coming yeah. out, which, which does actually look a bit dangerous. Yes. Because I wouldn't like to be sat right next no. to a naked flame like that, even if it's under control by BBC Visual Effects. If, if this such thing can <laughs> yeah. be said. What, control? Yes. Yeah, they were into control. No, they weren't. Um, Jones sort of suggests that Walker stick his finger in the hole. Yeah, like a little Belgian boy. Well, he, yeah, he says... Um, a little Belgian. In... Well, oh, hole. Well, yeah, he, yeah, he yeah, suggests yeah. what should... the Belgian boy does. So Walker thinks of the mannequin piece. So he thinks yes. he means piddle on it. Yes. Whereas uh, Jones is is talking about the little Dutch boy who, who stuck his finger in a dyke. So. Mm, quite. Yeah, there you go. Mm. So next scene, back in the in the church hall. Uh, first appearance of the vicar now. Yes. So we we really are. We're racking it up this episode. Sort of knocking them off. The 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 the, the, uh, the vicar is mentioned earlier, but this is his his first appearance. And it's a brief though, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and I like the thing where Fraser tries. Well, Fraser goes and fills up the gas bag with with, with, with a hose from the vicar's gas Fraser fire. Fraser is quite a relaxed character at this point. Yes, isn't he? he's not doing all the eye rolling and we're, no, we're he's doing not intense or anything yeah. like that, is he? Yeah. And I like the way they just fool the vicar into think they're being they're charitable and filling his, and filling his fire, fire up. Mm-hmm. So for the final mm. scene, uh, we we have uh, Mr. Blewett lying on the floor, <laughs> yeah, cause, pretending um, to be a casualty. Because the AR, ARP wardens are having a sort oh, of um, exercise, an exercise, aren't they? And, yeah. and they want the van to, as an ambulance. As an ambulance, yeah. So this is uh, Percy Street. Which is actually in reality Nether Row in Thetford. That's it, Nether Row. I couldn't remember the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just off the Berry Road. And the set is pretty convincing as a as a depiction of, mm. of Nether Road. Do you think? Yeah. Because we mix again, we mix studio and the film here. Yeah. So yeah, because it's very flint. It's all flint napping along there. Yeah, and having seen Harold Bennett in his final uh, appearance in mm. Are You Being Served? Yeah. Recently. Um, He's, he's noticeably younger here. Cause, well, yes. Because they're just, mm. like, manhandling him all yeah, over the place. Yeah, and he's just sort of putting out with it, isn't he? So. And what was it you said, Warren, about a Will Hay film this reminded yeah. you of? Uh, it reminded me of Where's That Fire, where they're trying to put the pole... Um, the, the three firemen are trying to put the pole, headed by Captain Viking, yeah. Will Hay, trying to put the pole up the um, into the fire station. All right. And they're trouble getting the pole up. So okay. It goes all over the place. Right, that can happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brief appearance by Nigel Hawthorne. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I wonder whether it was. It is him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He apparently he was in the Gnomes of Dulwich oh, gosh. this year. <laughs> but since the Gnomes of Dulwich doesn't exist. We'll never know. We'll never know. Fortunately. Um, eventually. <laughs> uh, oh, a little appearance by Mrs. Pike as well. Yes. Yes. Um and you spotted the BBC blankets, didn't yes, you, Lisa? Yes. Which we always Great like. shout from Lisa. Yeah. BBC blanket. Yes. And in the end, Mr. Blewett just gets fed up and starts to walk to the hospital himself. Yeah. And that's the final shot, isn't it? Yeah. But I'm going to ask, this is shown 30 years after the outbreak of World War Two. Mm-hmm. Do you think anybody was a bit offended by this? Because they're... they're I, initially, 
um, when, when they sort of did the viewing copy of Dad's Army, it didn't get a terribly good report. No. Because, no. um, of course, infamously, David Croft hid the report and mm-hmm. uh, in his desk or something <laughs> like yeah, that. Yeah, it never quite made it any further, did it? But, I mean, we, we you know, we regard Dad's Army itself as, as ancient history, mm-hmm. a, along with World War Two, But, you know, th- think back to 30 years ago, from our point of view, Warren, is 1989. Yeah. Yes. And how far, how long ago is, 1930, is 1989 to us? Not long, is it? Not long at all, no. So... Mm. I'm just interested to what you... As soon as you say the date, I remember a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, from somebody watching in 1969, 30 years ago, for a lot of people, ain't going to be that long ago, is it? I think it's because the programme isn't serious. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think if you had a drama, it would be uncomfortable. And an aspect of that drama was to lampoon a particular aspect of that time. Yeah. But I think by the fact that the programme doesn't take itself seriously in the fact there is a threat yeah it is literally a stone's throw across the coast yeah and we could all be wiped out but it's dealt with in such a carefully crafted way that the threat's there it's in the background and it is a little bit of the subplot isn't it yeah because invasion could happen at any time but if you've mixed into the match these quite um eccentric characters and they're everyday characters that people can probably relate to. The, the Bolshe bank manager. Yeah. So this is now starting to uh, sort of dilute that memory to a certain extent because you're you're focusing more on the characters than more on the back than less of the background that's going on at that particular. But time. it's interesting just how much of what we think of the Dad's Army format comes into place in this in episode, this episode. Yeah, yeah. very much so yeah. Yeah. that you've got the van you've got the vicar you've got mrs fox you've got yeah. the chief warden all of that happens in mm. in one, episode, in one yeah. episode so it all sort of seems to lock into the place yeah. it's hard to tell with season two how it was on broadcast given that mm. half of it's missing yeah and it'll be interesting mm. to see the remakes mm-hmm. once we once we but get the season chance season one the laughter is it's, somewhat reserved it's, it's slightly tentative i think yeah. the first season it's a bit like python isn't yeah. it mm. where you you have a funny scene and not everybody laughs in the audience yeah nobody quite knows what to make of some yeah. bits of it i think but clearly the the country's have the, the viewing public are happy and comfortable with this memory yeah because it's gone to season three now yeah and the laughter is quite loud yes and infectious oh the, certainly the studio audience is very much enjoying it yeah and i think that's probably true of the audience at, at home so. and i think very much that the the actors have now found yeah their niche in their characters yeah. and we know there's further character development to come like fraser and walker fraser is still not a, a an undertaker even by this point really no oh right no that, that that's a couple of episodes <laughs> in the future so yeah, we, it's it, it's it's still not quite there. Yeah. But I'd say it's ninety percent there by by this point. So it's just just interesting to see to see this this opening episode of. And he's not so doom season. No, no. We were pointing out no. earlier. Well, there you are. And I would just say, as much as these situations are treated lightheartedly and played for the comedy, when they're required to do something more serious, like in the battle for Godfrey's cottage. Mm. They're all quite prepared 
to go to their death. Oh, absolutely. To yes. stand up for the country. Yes. So they're I protecting saw, their little protecting, slice of England, yeah. aren't they? And I saw an interview when the Dad's Army film came out, the recent one, with um, an ex um, uh, member of the Home Guard, mm. and he was he was sort of, oh no, they're they're taking the Mickey, and I was thinking, now hang on, you haven't actually watched it. Sit down and watch it, and I think you'll find that they're doing they they're giving the Home Guard absolutely. a good face. Yeah. But, you know. but isn't it interesting that of all the shows we're covering in this edition of the podcast, it's the earliest one, the one that's closest to the war, mm. but yeah. it's the one that's still being repeated to this day yeah. On, yeah. on a regular yeah. basis. Mm-hmm. You know, you wait, you wait, and this episode will come round again yeah. on BBC Two. It will. So, yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge achievement, isn't mm-hmm. it? So there yeah. you are. Yeah. There's Dad's Army. Mm-hmm. Thank you. See you again. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Best drama on UK Gold every Tuesday at nine with the prisoners of war in Colditz Castle. We have a system here. We are paying orders. Many thanks to Warren for joining us on the sofa. Yes, thank you, Warren. That was a very fun article. And hopefully he will be back I'm soon. sure he will be, yes. Right, yeah. next, Martin continues his article and takes us on a trip to... Colditz. Meanwhile, in the, by definition, more blokey world of Golditz, half a decade earlier, Edward Hardwick, one day to be a memorable replacement Dr. Watson to Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes, got himself captured and condemned to wear an unconvincing bald cap before becoming a compulsive escaper from the various POW detention centres that he was sent to. It is only at the end of the first episode of the BBC series Colditz that we become aware that the castle prison run by Michael Sheard, that Edward Hardwick's character Pat Grant has just almost successfully escaped from, but unfortunately been returned to, is not the Colditz castle of the series title that we think it is, but some other lesser castle from where he is about to be carted away. Happily for him, the Germans seem far more unlikely to just shoot prisoners of war than civilians helping potential prisoners of war, and so he gets sent to the legendary, supposedly inescapable fortress of Colditz, and for him, the rest of the series will eventually unfold pretty much as expected. However, the first few episodes of Colditz do rather avoid going to Colditz itself for quite some time. 
Instead, we are introduced one by one to the main characters over several episodes in a structure that also served the beginning of Blake 7 rather well later in the decade. This means that episode 2 ignores the events of episode 1 almost completely and involves David McCallum as a shot-down pilot named Carter, who spends his time pretty much doing everything that Lifeline in Belgium would find so very wrong before not getting himself shot, and instead, as he has been such a troublemaker, being told that he is being sent to the escape-proof and now slightly more ominous-sounding Colditz. This is the other side of the story. What happens to an airman shot down in Germany when Lifeline doesn't appear to help him on his way? His friend, an airman with two broken legs, seems happy enough to be carted off to a POW camp, but the fate of the priest, who has tried to save some Jewish children and doesn't appreciate the attention that Carter brings to his plans, seems less assured. The start of this episode is unusual, as it shows some of Carter's home life before his last fateful mission, and therefore features, for once, in what would be, by definition, a very bloke-filled series, an actual role for an actual woman, his wife, Kathy, played by Joanna David. It won't be until episode 7 that we get even a glimpse of another woman, and then two will turn up almost at once in a tale of driving rain and the betrayal of a certain dick player, I kid you not, by Davros. Well, sort of. The third episode starts with that Lieutenant Dick Player RN being washed ashore, and after several escapades, ending up in the hands of the Gestapo in Paris. Player is portrayed by that Christopher Neem chap again, who, as we know, would later feature prominently in the first series of Secret Army. Funny that. As someone who only really knew Christopher Neem from his role in the aborted Doctor Who story Sharda, I hadn't realised quite how ubiquitous he was in 1970s television series. In Paris, he is interrogated, perhaps rather bizarrely, by another Dr. Watson, Nigel Stock, as some casting director's peculiar idea of a Gestapo officer, and his assistant, who is played by Terence Hardiman, also later of Secret Army. Eventually, to prove his identity, he is taken to Berlin and interviewed by former Olympic horseman Paul von Eisinger, played with a lethal charm by John Quentin, who fails to persuade him to join the German cause, which finds player finally being transferred across to the infamous Kolditz Castle, doubled by Sterling Castle for production purposes, and meeting the other new arrivals, a miserable Carter and a less miserable Pat Grant, and with a little bit of Polish humour, and with a first glimpse of Paul Chapman as George Brent, the series proper can finally begin. Having started as pretty much an anthology series of standalone stories with little more than the ominous threat of Colditz to tie them together, the show finally meshes together in episode 4 unsurprisingly entitled Welcome to Colditz, in which we get a brief glimpse of Robert Wagner, or Robert Wagner, being bundled through a doorway as we are introduced to the no-nonsense John Preston, played by Jack Headley, the new senior officer about whom, as is usual with such situations, the other prisoners are initially suspicious of. Naturally, this jumped-up terrier is made of sterner stuff and is fully prepared to take one for the team, which means that by the next episode he is considered to be an all-round good egg, as he sets up the, the plan and escape rotors for the prisoners under his command, for it is an officer's duty to try and escape. We also meet the delightfully bewigged Bernard Hepton, long before he swapped sides and became Albert, playing the strangely anonymous Commandant, occasionally known as Carl. He has a son from a second, younger, post-World War I generation, and someone who is much more indoctrinated into the notion of Hitler's war, and he worries about him. And this has the unusual, well unusual for British war drama in those days anyway, effect of humanising the 
the enemy and making them seem far more sympathetic. After all, the officers controlling Colditz Castle are generally battle-worn and unfit for frontline service, hence their new lives in the charming backwater of Colditz Castle, keeping watch after habitual escapees in an impregnable fortress 400 miles from the Swiss border. This has the air of making the whole series seem far less bleak than Secret Army would ever be, and the optimistic streak that the constant hope for escape brings to the series gives a far more comfortable viewing experience. Happily, the camp is under the control of the Wehrmacht, the ordinary, more humane and less zealous and fanatical soldiers serving in the German army, and not the SS. A story strand that is initially covered in the fifth episode, Maximum Security, which basically involves a German administrative conference about prison security and features a delightful turn from Michael Goff as a broken and embittered drunk German officer. Because we do need reminding from time to time that not all serving German soldiers were Nazis. That episode also introduces Hans Meyer as Hauptmann Franz Ullmann, the new security officer of Colditz, and we get our second glimpse of the American prisoner Carrington played by Robert Wagner, bringing our main cast, other than a few significant changes made for Series 2, to its full complement, and the main credits will henceforth reflect his star status and sideline several of the amazing character actors we've already met to supporting player caption slides. As an outsider, and worse still an American, Carrington is at first not to be trusted and suspected of being a German infiltrator. Certainly it doesn't help his cause by being both a writer, these ruddy intellectuals, and it would appear a Nazi sympathiser. However, this is just a ploy to get his urgent message out about the coming of Operation Barbarossa, an attempt which ultimately fails due to Gestapo intervention, but does raise the interesting concept of the escape of ideas in a series more usually focusing on more human efforts to escape. The TV series Colditz was created by Brian Degar in association with Gerard Glaister and would run for 28 episodes across two series broadcast between 1972 and 1974. For the next two years, escaping from Colditz would basically be the plan, playing that jolly boys game where someone will exclaim, well I think it's a damn good idea, and get the inevitable retort, damn good, hiding escape kits in sneaky places and ingenious nooks and crannies, which becomes ever more necessary when there are more and more searches after any escape attempt. Sometimes it seems more like a cosy posh boys club played out in an enclosed environment, because you can't really have your main cast slowly diminishing in number, so there has to be a reason for several of them not to, and the series develops a more of a soap format from time to time. There's also much obligatory scrambling across rooftops, both in studio and on location, with sheets tied together to make ropes, which will ultimately lead to the self-same problem that a series like Prison Break also suffers from. Once the escaping is done, what do you do next if your series is to continue? Well, as is often the case, other stories start to be told, like the story of a kangaroo court in which the men take it upon themselves to pronounce ruthless judgement on a supposed traitor. The topic of rough justice seems to have been a staple of 70s drama, which is also an episode in which Patrick Troughton auditions for his role as the troubled priest in The Omen. And then there's an insight into the faking, or otherwise, of mental illness in the astonishing episode entitled Tweedledum, which takes place over such a long period of time, it seems that for the series Colditz, the war will soon be over. There's also a look at the comparatively humane treatment of captive soldiers in the tense episode Court Martial, in which the reasonableness, or otherwise, of military law on both sides in a war is considered, and the rights of captive soldiers 
are explored. Interestingly, such captive soldiers, the enemy, seem to get far better treatment than the civilians in occupied territory do in Secret Army. Or maybe that's just because the two series are exploring different waters thematically. Certainly the later series is far more grim and brutal, and really does bring home the realities of war that the films, and to a certain extent series like Colditz, tended to play down. Finally, as the series does seem to be treading water before introducing its big end-of-season escape story, we even get a rerun out of ideas, let's do a whodunit episode in the form of murder, with a question mark, which does reintroduce the problem of what the Gestapo might do if they came in to run things. But seems a little out of place, really. It's sort of like a prototype heart-to-heart with David McCallum playing Jennifer to Robert Wagner's Carrington, only this time with Nazis, but it's a solid enough episode. With a successful home run concluding the first series, the second does lose one or two key characters, but manages to carry on regardless with the introduction of the totally fictional character of Major Horst Moon in the second series, played by the sublime Anthony Valentine. We must briefly touch upon the swastika imagery which adorns the packaging for such series when they're released, and in the case of Colditz anyway, can and does also feature prominently on the title sequence. However distasteful the symbol might be, and despite what some might suggest in recent times, it is very distasteful indeed. It is difficult to pretend it wasn't there when dressing sets authentically and putting actors in authentic period costumes. It does, however, make the viewer uncomfortable nowadays when it pops up on the credits. Such things wouldn't be allowed at all in modern Germany, and yet it should make us feel that way, and really, and as long as the packaging is not choosing to glorify it in any way, I think it's an acceptable graphic shorthand for underscoring just how brutal and wrong the forces of fascism were when they needed to be resisted. Due to the nature of these stories, the caption credits for the series remain in a state of constant flux throughout, so it's it's very easy to spot which character the individual episodes are mostly about, and who the genuine stars of the show actually are. Funnily enough, the roots of something not unlike Lifeline get discussed in episode 3 of the second series, Odd Man Out, in which Carter's wife is seen again, woman alert, and shows off her not inconsiderable talents for espionage in an episode about the spy game, generally, which ends with a long speech by Ian McCulloch, which is extraordinarily powerful and a moment of brilliant acting of the type studio drama was often capable. As the series concludes, it becomes less about the escapees and more about the effects of incarceration upon men imprisoned in Colditz Castle, with stories involving gamblers and gliders and oversexed Frenchmen, woman in Colditz TV series Klaxon, before becoming more about telling the story of Colditz at the end of the war and getting considerably bleaker as it does. Like in Secret Army, Series 2 involves the ongoing story arc of the downfall of a decorated and this time more dedicated Nazi officer, and it is Major Moon who performs this function, although his fate is rather less bloody and unjust than that of Major Reinhardt in the later series. When liberation finally does come, it brings with it a certain amount of fear and jeopardy, not least the fear that the Germans are going to dispose of any witnesses, i.e. the prisoners, as they depart, although the way that the German officers are ultimately dealt with as as the Americans arrive is done with an unusual and quite welcome quiet dignity. However, there is also a certain fear of the future as these long incarcerated men look forward to their post-war existences. This being a fairly fictionalised account of the Colditz story, we never really find out what happens to any of them, and apart from a few vague plans that they mention, we are left to wonder as the courtyard finally clears and the series ends with more of a quiet, respectful whimper than any spectacularly loud bang. Thank you to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. And he'll be back again Very later. Very soon, yes. You just wanted to say a couple of words about Colditz, did yes. you? Yes, two things, because yeah. we watched the first episode of Colditz the other night, Yeah. and it has our um, late lamented 
friend Michael Sheard in it. Well, he mentions it in his book, he actually. He does. Yeah, I was going to say, very, you were going to read, weren't you? Yeah, page 100 of uh, Yes, Mr. Bronson. Memoirs of a bum actor. Yeah. I have mentioned Colditz, haven't I? I mean the television series. I was the first person to say the word Colditz in Colditz, and I said it to Teddy meaning Edward Hardwick, who was about to be sent there for being a bad lad. Yes, yes. I love that's what his memory of Colditz is. Yes, and there's a story about he'd worked with um, Edward Hardwick on something, well, he worked with him on something else, and the the American actor Richard Jordan Mm. is also on this film. Yeah. And the English actors are being very sort of informal with each other and silly, and apparently when Edward Hardwick Hardwick came in they were all, all like hello Teddy hello Teddy and this, all, all of the British actors were just being silly and Richard Jordan was disgusted and stalked off because you know they weren't being serious well this this was in the film The Bunker yes so, about 10 years later I think yeah with uh, Anthony Hopkins as Hitler okay if you can imagine that yeah <laughs> But yes, everybody likes E. Hardwick, and the cry went up in a silly high-pitched voice, Hello, Teddy! This was echoed from another quarter, Hello, Teddy! And then another, <laughs> Hello, Teddy! <laughs> and it's just a sort of silly thing that we do with we Warren, do with Warren isn't it? yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes yeah. it's a great shame we never got Mr. Sheard on here. I know, yeah. I know, he's much missed. But yes. then, um, Cold It's got a mention in something you were watching the other night. Yes, yes, I've been watching, there's been a documentary series on Channel 4 about, um, it was titled The Queen's Lost Family. They're not really lost, they're just probably not as well known. Well, one of them was a father, he's certainly not a lost member of the family. But they were talking about King George VI and his brothers, Edward VIII, who abdicated, George, who Duke of Kent, who was killed in the war, and Henry, who was Duke of Gloucester, and about their relationships. And they're also talking about his sister, the Princess Royal, and she married the Earl of Harwood, and their eldest son was in the army in the war, and he was captured in, I think it was 1942, and because obviously he was a very important prisoner for the Germans, they sent him to Colditz, because that's like their top security prison it might be a bit later than 1942 anyway so they send him to Colditz and in early 1945 Hitler signs a death warrant for him and various other prisoners one of whom is Winston Churchill's nephew but the commandant of Colditz looking at the way the war is going I think it was something like May 1945 didn't get didn't have them killed because I think he thought, well, it's better not to kill them and to have these powerful people attend to the fact that I was quite a sort of good commandant and not too bad. Because if he'd killed them and then the war ends two months later, mm. or one month later, then, or not even that far, but whatever it was, <laughs> it's not going to be good for him. And because, yeah. you know, because obviously by then Hitler was dead. So, yeah. but yeah, it just popped up suddenly yeah. in the programme. <laughs> so. But now, uh... yes. Paul, the Shy yes. Yeti of the Shy Life podcast, yes. will briefly pop in mm-hmm. to have a look at... Hello, hello. Good morning. Listen very carefully. I shall say this only way. Ask me the binoculars. Yes. Not a Mickey Mouse binoculars. Powerful Gestapo binoculars. There is no reason to cease your jollification just because a senior Gestapo officer in a particularly foul mood is entering your premises. Psst. It is I, Shy Yeti. Yes, it is. It is I, Shayeti. Uh, Paul, Paul Chandler, reporting for Round the Archives, and I have been 
Uh, I've been called in to uh, cover an episode of the series Allo Allo that uh, fits with the theme of this episode. Before I discuss which episode that I'm going to be covering, I'll just give you a quick backstory on the whole series for anybody who isn't familiar with the show. So, Allo Allo is a BBC television British sitcom that was first broadcast on BBC One between 1982 and 1992. comprises 85 episodes. The story is set in a small town cafe in German-occupied France during the Second World War, and it is a parody of another BBC programme, the wartime drama Secret Army. Yes, I am reading this from Wikipedia. <laughs> well, you know, why own a dog and bark yourself? Why own a Wikipedia and write your own sentence? Uh, Hello, Hello was created by David Croft and Jeremy Lloyd, and David Croft also wrote the theme music. Lloyd and Croft wrote the first six series. The remaining series were written by Lloyd and Paul Adam. Now, the episode we'll be covering actually comes from season six. I'll just quickly give you a uh, rundown of some of the main characters. Rene, played by Gordon Kay, is the main character. His wife, Edith, played by Carmen Silvera. And then you get the various members of staff. Yvette, played by Vicky Michelle, throughout the whole run. Various other staff members who come and go. And of course you you get the various uh, German military characters. Major General Eric von Klinkerhofen, played by Hilary Minster. Colonel Kurt von Strom, played by Richard Marner. Lieutenant Herbert Gruber, played by Guy Siner. Not to mention Herr Flick, played by Richard Gibson, and later by David Jansen. But really, there are there are a lot of characters. The basic premise is that uh, René, who runs a cafe, is part of the resistance. There's all sorts of twisty-turny plots, and uh, ultimately it is a, a sitcom. But uh, it's a very slapstick sitcom, and uh, there are lots of catchphrases... And uh, and it's completely surreal in places. I must admit that when it was originally on TV, I didn't watch it because, I don't know, I don't think that I thought it was up to much. <laughs> I think probably for a lot of the time that it ran, I was more into the alternative comedy of the time. People like French and Saunders, Victoria Wood, Fran Laurie, even people like Smith and Jones or Alexi Sale. And... I think I probably just thought that Hello Hello was just a standard BBC sitcom. But 30 years later, returning to it and watching it, in the same way as I've returned to things like Terry and June or George and Mildred and really enjoyed them, watching Hello Hello for the first time, as I did a year or so ago, and I must admit I've only watched the first three or four seasons, but I I found it hysterical (laughs) in places, Um, very enjoyable. I like a lot of these uh, sitcoms um, with sort of catchphrases. Uh, you often have to watch quite a few episodes to really get into the characters and the setup and those catchphrases, and then it becomes very easy to love them. I remember another show that I may well be covering in the future, Get Smart. It's very much the same. There are so many catchphrases, characters, silly little things that are unique to get smart that uh, I think if you just dipped into an episode it doesn't always seem to work um Alolo is very much along those sort of lines I'm not sure if you just watched a random episode whether you'd you'd get it immediately maybe I'm wrong you might well do talking of which I am going to be dipping into a random episode of Alolo because the episode that I'm talking about was screened on the 2nd of September 1989 which at the time would have been 50 years after the start of the second world war and of course it's now 80 years since the start of the Second World War. So the episode I'm covering is called Desperate Doings in the Graveyard 
and the plot is as follows. Leclerc's brother Ernest has swapped places with him and is now the resident pianist, an object of Madame Fanny's affections. The resistance are constructing a communications hub in the empty grave of René's twin brother. Talking about twists and turns, I've certainly not got to the episodes where René had a twin brother. Um, although I think I've read about it because I'm the sort of person who likes to read episode guides. But, uh, yes. So this episode is the very first of season six. Season six ran from the 2nd of September to the 21st of October 1989. Now there's a sad reason for the plotline involving Leclerc's brother, who is played by Derek Royal. The original Leclerc was played by Jack Haig, but unfortunately he died before the production of this series. So, so a way of addressing that was to have his brother joined the show. Apparently the two characters are very similar. Anyway, I've never seen this episode before as far as I'm aware, so the rest of this review will be, well, my uh, first-hand reaction to this episode. The first five minutes of this episode uh, probably has more plot than most uh, <laughs> most programmes that get reviewed on this uh, podcast. Let me see. Uh, so, René is about to put flowers on the grave of his own twin brother who he was playing um, because there was no twin brother. Um, and uh, although he has a lovely bouquet of lilies, the rest of the staff and his wife don't have quite such wonderful uh, bouquets to put upon the grave. Edith has some rhubarb leaves that she wasn't able to use in a pie. Then there is oh, also a cactus. And, uh, but before much more can occur they are warned that uh, the grave is now being used as a hub for radio technology to be able to contact uh, back to the resistance. And then there's something about the British Airmen and a tin bath with, like, a submarine. And, um, oh dear, it's all very complicated. Well, it's not, but it is to explain. Oh dear... As I continue through the episode, there are many, many silly moments that have me giggling and chuckling away, from double entendres about crumpets to bad Humphrey Bogart impressions, and plans involving Germans trying to confuse French that are actually English by following a self-help course on a record. It's all very silly. Very, very silly, but very enjoyable. Well, I'm glad to announce that the episode only gets sillier as it continues. We soon see the secret radio base underneath the gravestone, which looks like uh, it could well have played a part in Doctor Who's Blink. There were certainly quite a lot of weeping angels in that graveyard. I have to say that I was really enjoying events and uh, glanced down to see that there was only about five more minutes left of the episode. And when René is called to the graveyard to uh, send a message via the secret radio, He is followed close behind by Lieutenant Gruber, who uh, is feeling guilty for the fact that he thinks he killed René. Of course, the episode ends with with a mistake, and the real René is hoist up on the receiver that extends out of the grave, making Lieutenant Gruber think that the ghost of René has risen from the grave. It's all very silly. But as I say, great fun. I think probably my two favourite scenes of the episode is when Gruber has to do an interrogation of Monsieur Alphonse as played by Kenneth Connor and uh, he has to resort to doing it from a book because he's so poor at doing interrogations. The other moment is 
when uh, René gets caught by his wife with Yvette, kissing her passionately upon the table and then somehow managing to turn it to make Edith feel bad. Part of me feels that's really awful behaviour, but, but it's such a long-running joke of the series that, well, one simply can't help but have a giggle. It's British farce at its best. And probably not something you could get away with these days. It's pretty good that a, a series is still as strong as this after, after five series. And I don't know if it's a particularly strong episode because it's the start of a new season. The previous season, screened from September 88 to February 1989, was a bit of a different season in that there were 26 episodes made. They were slightly shortened to 25 minutes from 30, and they were really aired to be shown in the US. And presumably, that experiment hadn't exactly been successful, or perhaps some other way of doing things had been decided, because Series 6 is just back down to 8 episodes. But really, considering... But really, considering they'd just come off the back of doing a 26-episode season, for this episode to be that strong and that enjoyable, well, it just shows that uh, they knew what they were doing. Of course, once you watch lots of episodes of series like this, perhaps you begin to see where they're repeating themselves, so I've no way of knowing whether this is the case, but uh, it uh, certainly, to be watched in isolation, I certainly found it very amusing, and it definitely had me laughing out loud on more than one occasion. Anyway, not including this particular season, the series was to last another three seasons until uh, the end of 1992, so there was certainly more to come. I definitely look forward to watching a few more episodes in fact i'm gonna have to end my article now and uh, get back to that dvd i'm sorry i want to watch another one (laughs) okay sorry andrew and lisa you did commission me to do this one you know what i'm like you may have got me hooked you're going to be to blame when i end up doing 24 hour aloe aloe marathons next time you send a call for me to do an article i might just reply with a very bad french accent and as i said before psst tis i shy yet Bye for now. I am most dissatisfied with the way you are running this town. Cuba, arrest Monsieur Alphonse the Undertaker, and we will interrogate him. Bring him in here! Now then, Colonel, interrogate him. Go ahead, Cuba. Good morning. <laughs> say good morning. Walk round him slowly, looking at him closely. Then stand behind him. This always puts them in a state of anxiety. What the general says is quite correct. <laughs> what is your name? You know his name! There are distinct guidelines in the manual of interrogation. Use them. Understand this. We know everything. In that case, can I go? Should I sing another song? No! <laughs> We're in enough trouble already. <laughs> series of Tenko. The women arrive at a different camp which is run in a strange manner. Josephine Welcome is Miss Hassan, a temperamental assistant to the commandant. I am the official interpreter and I assist Lieutenant Nakamura in the administration of this camp. There is no trouble here. There is no disobedience here. Knickers! Tenko starts this Thursday at 9.25 on BBC One. 
Thank you to Paul for Yes, that. thank you, Paul. He, he likes his low low and uh, Well, we yeah. seem to have turned him back onto it. Yes, yeah. yes, we've got him back into it. Because we his. haven't actually finished the last couple of seasons, no, have we? No, we got so far. And then we sort of stalled. And we sort of stalled a bit because yeah. it was getting to the point where it was sort of repeating plots again. You think, hang on a minute, I've seen this plot <laughs> before. But um, obviously there's so many, so many plots you can do. But we watched the first couple of episodes the other day and it yeah. was quite fun. Yeah. So... But uh, now Martin will return for part three of his yes. article, yes, um, which will be about Tenko. Yes. But then after that, we'll just do a little wrap-up yep. piece at the end. So mm-hmm. we'll see you all again soon. Okay. As my dad would have reminded me if he was still around, over in the Far East Theatre, things continued on in their own bloody war for several months beyond VE Day, and it is to the Far East that we turn our attention for the third of the series I wish to examine. Whilst Colditz was predominantly a masculine series with barely a woman in sight, this is totally turned around by the next series we're going to consider, because thankfully, if there is anything at all to be thankful about in the story of the fall of Singapore, there are far more roles for women in the early 1980s series called Tenko, created by Lavinia Warner. Along the but of an Ed Reardon joke, the story of Tenko was told across three ten-episode series between 1981 and 1984, which surprised me as I was expecting 13 a year, plus a reunion special a little later on, and told the story of a group of women imprisoned by the Japanese after the fall of Singapore, and, as such, might almost be considered to be the antidote to Colditz and the focus upon the European war generally. There's a surprisingly lengthy ordinary lifestyle preamble to the stories of the horrors of the internment camps, which was actually filmed in Singapore and which lasts for more than an episode. This helps to fill in several backstories, introduces several characters and demonstrates the inherent racism of the attitudes of the British Empire. These are mostly demonstrated by the reaction to the mixed-race Christina Emily Bolton, despite her Scottish roots and attitude which will quite rightly come back and bite them in the fullness of time, and the superior and presumed unassailably indestructible manner generally displayed by the people in the colonial service community and other facets of their privileged position in that society demonstrates visually just how far the distance is that several of the women will have to fall. After a surprisingly well-staged shipwreck on the frightfully pre cattle truck that is one of the evacuation ships, we are slowly introduced to the survivors, who are immediately reduced, divided and separated, and the women are marched off to an uncertain future. Because of all this, it is not until episode 3 that we reach the camp itself and start hearing the soon-to-be all-too-familiar bellows of bow, bow and punish, directed at these fourth-class women by the brutal Lieutenant Sato, played with relish by Ijai Kushuhara. And, because it's a 1980s series predominantly featuring women, the occasional flash of un erotic nudity. This episode also features the first appearance of the sublime Bert Kwok as Major Yamauchi, the commandant of this hellhole inside which the women find themselves. How the various women choose to respond to their new situation tells us a lot about each of them, but it is the resolute yet deeply racist elderly prisoner Sylvia, Renee Asherton, who is the first to suffer the rigours of the punishment hut for refusing to bow. Meanwhile, former society high flyer Rose, played by future dynasty star Stephanie Beecham, finds a soul 
soulmate in the no-nonsense and far lower class Blanche, played with coarse gusto by the always excellent Louise Jameson. Meanwhile, amid the routine of cleaning and stoic British colonial philosophising, it seems inevitable that it is Marion Jefferson, the wife of a British colonel, as played by Anne Bell, who rises to the top and becomes the leader of the British contingent, especially when Stephanie Cole's no-nonsense Dr Beatrice Mason proves far too busy and far too unlikably bombastic to take charge, and we begin to discover the different priorities of the younger and older prisoners surviving in this dreadful place. In episode 4, the Dutch arrive, including the sour and selfish Mrs Metro-Goldwyn, Van Meyer, brilliantly played by Elizabeth Chambers, and the formidable Sister Ulrika, played by Patricia Lawrence, who we already met in full, unstoppable force flow in the opening episodes, and because these new arrivals have survived with their luggage and their prams intact, this leads to a growing sense of unease between the haves and the have-nots. This feeling is not helped by the notification that the women will no longer have such help as there was from the natives, but will have to fend for themselves, and with children in the camp, the arrival of a trader, the discovery of a pregnancy, and the brutal response to a kind gesture between two mothers means the niceties are over, even if, after the women have been taken off to do work, we are able to see those scenes all too rare in television drama, women just talking as they share their nostalgia for better days. By episode 5, we already have a dead baby for Dorothy, Veronica Roberts giving an astonishingly brutal performance when she gets the chance, and uncomfortable displays of deeply entrenched racism against the Japanese, and episode 6 brings with it the what-length Blanche is prepared to go through in order to get some quinine storyline, which, with its accusations of rape, makes for an extraordinary hour of television. This episode was written by Anne Valerie and jumps, as it does, from the terror of Marion's interview by the secret police to the joy of a celebration of completing the building of a sickbay hut, which symbolically involves the commandeering of a baby's pram as a makeshift truck, to the despair of the aftermath of the rape attempt, and some rough justice for the soldiers involved who we finally see being led away to their own dark fate at the very end. After these events, by the opening of the next episode, the women start to have the relative fun, if it can be called that, or perhaps escape, of a game of rounders, which is interrupted by the obligatory childbirth scene. <laughs> I often wonder whether there are special classes in playing childbirth scenes in acting school, as all series featuring women in key roles seem to find it necessary to have to feature one eventually. Anyway, despite Yamauchi's desire for some positive publicity, the results of this are suitably tragic, leading in a roundabout way into the series dealing with the then still tricky in primetime drama issue of same-sex relationships which is addressed in a way that they never would or could have with the chips of Kolditz a decade earlier. Which brings us to Blanche, and in her own homage to Kolditz, her failed escape attempt, which seems unsurprising under the circumstances given that even Dr Mason has tried to pimp her out again, this time to get much needed morphine, as well as the growing number of graves in the camp's makeshift graveyard, with symbolically the baby's pram now released from truck duties to serve as an occasional hearse. This means that whilst the normally unflappable Dr Beatrice is loosening up in an almost inverse ratio to the tightening up of the ghastly Mrs Van Meyer, the death of Judith comes as a body blow and leaves Judith's daughter Debbie confused enough to tag along uninvited with Blanche's unwise escape attempt. And because of well-meant protective good intentions on the part of those Blanche thought that she could trust most, those who promised Judith that they'd look after Debbie, they are caught and sent to be punished. This is despite the recent softening and humanisation of the fearsome Major Yamauchi in what is an increasingly astounding performance 
performance by Bert Kwok, and even the old colonial Sylvia has started to become slightly less racist, at least as far as Christina is concerned. But Yamauchi is unrelenting when it comes to punishment, and it is only through the selfless creation of hats and a stirring rendition of Jerusalem that I defy anyone not to be moved by that the women are able to save Blanche from her ordeal. The first series ends on notes of both optimism, the women find out about the existence of a men's camp, and despair because some of the names they hope to see are not listed, along with Dr. Beatrice finally cracking under the strain. This is, perhaps bizarrely, a Christmas episode of sorts, the women creatively improvise a show or entertainment in the middle which is good but does slightly outstay its welcome and serves as a celebration of the entire first series and marks the end for both the original camp and several key characters who will not be seen again as the women are marched off towards a new camp which can only instill a sense of foreboding. In series two the women possibly for production reasons arrive at their brand new camp although this does mean that several key characters like Sylvia and Nelly are lost along the way the scripted excuse being that the group has been divided across two camps. The protracted march that takes place across the whole of episode one, a lot of it is spent in some exotic location, it's quite literally a killer in that Debbie is tragically lost, but does mean that we gain the excellent Jean Anderson as Lady Jocelyn Joss Holbrook, even if on occasions at first she seems to be speaking words originally meant for Sylvia. There is loss, heartbreak and moments of joy during this terrible journey, but as 1943 dawns, the surviving women find themselves at the top of a hill looking down upon their new home, a home which they, and we as viewers familiar with series one, find both unpleasant and terrifying in different ways to the previous one. This is, of course, peculiar. We were familiar with the old camp and the strange ways of this one suddenly seem hostile and bewildering, which is, of course, a brilliant dramatic conceit because the old camp was horrifying. Not the sort of place any of us could imagine having to survive in, but this place, with its sense of order and spick and span, lickety-splitness, and all run by the -the on-the-make Werner, played to brilliant perfection by Rosemary Martin, and the huge of eye and terrifying of temper Josephine Welcome as camp commandant by proxy. Miss Hassan somehow seems worse. Although Werner's stark statement to Mrs. Van Meyer that one must have order if one is to survive speaks volumes. Still, at least Marion finds a friend. Some friends she'll turn out to be, but I digress. Meanwhile, the brutal storylines lead to a suicide and an unwanted pregnancy, and Beatrice starts to see the light as her eyesight fails and seeks solace in the piano she manages to retune. Meanwhile, Sister Ulrika, reunited with the church via a priest, has a crisis of faith and takes a vow of silence. Meanwhile at least for a time, one of the enemy shows a kindlier side. Shinya is played by Takashi Kawahara, who would later make a kindlier impression in the first series of a very peculiar practice as the mathematician Chen Sung Yao. Suddenly, mid-series, as if there's been some notification that storylines need to be wrapped up, certain characters start to reappear, and we hear of the sad fate of some others, and the series unfolds to reveal the terrible consequences of both hope and despair. Liberation comes far earlier in the series run for Tenko than in the other series we've discussed, with the surviving women acquiring their dubious freedoms at the beginning of series three. This leads to perhaps a more satisfying resolution about the fates of the main cast than we've previously been given, as we never find out about the post-war lives of the men of Kolditz, and whilst these lives of the secret army lifeliners is touched upon in the Kessler follow-up, it is only really his story that is told in any great depth. More satisfying perhaps, but I do wonder whether it was simply because of the relentless grimness, or the lack of chaps on screen, it was simply thought too much for the viewers to bear. Also, with liberation comes the raiding of the camp stores, and these deprived women find themselves rather suddenly in a land of relative plenty, which leads to the inevitable realisation that many of the deaths of the prisoners could have been prevented, if only they'd been given such things earlier. Meanwhile, suddenly 
finding herself in a position of authority, Mrs. Jefferson has to learn to be pragmatic about cause and effect. You'll blame American submarine when it comes to matters of Red Cross parcels that never arrived and her sympathy for Yamauchi deepens, even though few would ever understand this. Lizzie Mickery's character of Maggie seems to appear from nowhere in the intervening and untold two years of narrative, despite the sense of her having always been around, and she seems to just be there to play a kind of proto-Blanche because Louise Jemison is no longer around, and, and sometimes you really miss her. That's not to denigrate the character of Maggie at all, and she's played with a delightful sense of vulgarity that is a breath of fresh air, representing in her li sexual liberation a spirit of freedom seldom displayed by the other characters. Liberation is most significantly and subtly indicated by the flags being swapped at the internment camp and by the different reactions of the Japanese soldiers to now becoming the prisoners themselves. Then the focus shifts to Singapore, and perhaps surprisingly the threat level doesn't seem to diminish all that much. Certainly the sense of what has been lost whilst the women were incarcerated is significant. There's also a strange sense that they've they've all lost the unity, the social levelling and sort of friendship that they, they found in adversity, and that loss is the one that hurts the most. Christine's half-British status, as the British influence in Singapore re-establishes itself and becomes a major plot strand, as does the post-war danger of simply being on the streets in a time when collaborators and formal imperial masters are becoming targets for the dispossessed. In amongst all the coming and going and rebuilding and departures, I reached series 3 episode 6, which was another cracking script written by, surprise surprise, Anne Valerie, and the one which dealt with what Dorothy was going to do with her life after being attacked as a collaborator and a sudden surprise reunion. There's a heart-rending scene staged in the studio set of Dorothy's bungalow, which, which even now finds me wondering why Veronica Roberts' television career wasn't stratospheric post-Tenko, because she's utterly amazing in it. In fact, now that I come to mention it, I do find myself wondering why so many of these great actors were not seen in much afterwards, apart from the obvious age and frailty of some of the older performances played in one or two. So many of these brilliant young actors were barely heard of on television, at least, ever again. And so the series carries on to its inevitable and heart-rending conclusion as the awful ties that bound these women together unravel. Christine feels more and more shut out of the whites-only world in a way she hasn't experienced since her days of Sylvia in series one. Dominica Van Meyer gets a reality check after exaggerating her own bravery to a journalist and finally admitting to the fear she constantly felt. And once her own story becomes better known, she manages to become generally more human than we ever suspected. A returning sister Ulrika has several vocational doubts and crises. Maggie's life twists and turns in unexpected ways. Kate has a tragedy which makes her more determined to become a doctor so that some good can come out of all of this. And Marion realises that the life of a pampered wife to a brigadier is really not for her. Meanwhile, Joss is determined to help the needy and we get more insights into her past life as the black sheep of the Holbrooks and Beatrice is feeling unwanted, unloved and unnecessary in the darkening world she now finds herself in. Ah people praising Beatrice about how many lives she saved without telling her to her face is one of the more heart-rending aspects of that final series, although due to fateful circumstances her future along with that of all the survivors of the POW camp seems more resolved as the series reaches its conclusion. And over it all is the spirit of Major Yamauchi causing several conflicts and clashes between the women once under his dubious charge. Sympathy, hatred and vengeance seldom sit well in such circumstances but the scenes are played so excellently despite some unfortunate costumes. Special mention shall also be made of Elspeth Gray as Phyllis Bristow, who makes a sterling addition to the cast at this point as their military liaison at Raffles, always keeping up her spirits in the face of a very difficult job indeed, as she tries to knock heads together to get these broken lives back on track. After one final tragedy at which you are left raging that such a thing could even happen after these women who have already suffered so much reach the relative safety of Singapore, the series proper fades out in an oddly inconclusive manner. Thankfully, the ties left hand hanging are resolved 
resolved in a one-off Tinker reunion set five years after the war in which we discover many of the resolutions to those enticing plot strands and which gives the satisfactory and proper conclusion to the series as a whole, something which is rare for these kinds of shows. Across these three impressive drama series, the BBC managed to tell some of the more obscure and forgotten stories to come out of those years of conflict and in doing so reminded people that war really wasn't all great escapes, stiff upper lips, gung-ho missions and brilliantly planned offensives. Sometimes it was about ordinary people too, surviving against unbelievable odds in the face of adversity and those stories always need to be told when the heroics are over and the battles won or lost. And on the BBC there were all, of course also, perhaps because they felt enough time had already passed, several opportunities to send up the war with series like Dad's Army, It Ain't Half Hot Mum and A Low Hello, taking a more rib-tickling or less respectful look at such times and maybe that's sometimes what's needed too. Although the cast of Secret Army might have disagreed with that in regard to at least one of those series. Of course, for the BBC, their war against enemies old and new was still ongoing. After all, the old enemy ITV also had a few tales to tell, and their own series set in wartime, such as Danger UXB and Enemy at the Door, were also classics of their time and told the story of the war on the home front, whereas the stories I've been talking about were very much about the war abroad. And ITV did also have that trump card in that definitive documentary telling the story of the Second World War and narrated by no less a figure than Laurence Olivier. The World at War came via independent television and that series is also worth a look. Perhaps another time, eh? Thanks to Martin yes, for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. Thank you for all of your hard work on those articles. You watched an awful lot of World War Two stuff, and I hope you're watching something cheerier now. Yes, indeed. I mean, yes. this has been, been a sort of major piece yes. of work, this yeah. one, and I'm mm-hmm. really glad that it came off and I'm pleased mm-hmm. with the results. So. Yes. Yeah, yes. but Tenko, a few words yes. from you about yes. Tenko? Well, firstly, the first thing I want to say about Tenko is that there's an excellent book about it. Yes. By um, a past contributor to this very podcast, Andy Priestner. Yes, he's also got a book about Secret and Army. And he's also got a book about Secret Army, which we forgot to mention earlier, but yeah. we're getting it in now, Andy. Yeah. Um, still both, available. Still available. Both highly recommended. Um, the Tenko one is, is a beautiful piece of work. He spoke to... All of the actresses involved, plus sort of Burt Kwok and various yeah. other actors. You, your and copy's got signatures in, hasn't My it? My copy, yes. Because um, I had an ebook copy that I read on my Kindle and I devoured it because I really enjoyed it. Uh, I once filled a journey to Swansea reading most of the book. Mm. And um, after we saw it, met him up with him earlier this year, he very kindly sent me a copy, a, a physical copy. Yeah. And it's one that's been signed by some of the cast including um, Ambell, Louise Jameson, Josephine Welcome who's in series two and Veronica Roberts. Hello Martha. Martha Catscum. <laughs> and so it's very nice to have that but yes his Secret Army's book is also wonderful yeah. so I'm full of information and as 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 thick as anything. <laughs> I think his Secret Army book's a little bit thicker than Tenko book. Yeah. 
but there's not much in it. Apparently, Paul O'Grady described his Tenko book as a phone book because <laughs> it is really thick. You know, you do need a book stand to put it on <laughs> to read it. But you've also got some other sort of background reading yes. Yes, he, recently, um, haven't you? Yeah, he recommended some books that I should try reading that the, the writers used to get the background. Various people's stories, um, including the biography of um, Margot Turner, who is the person that led Lavinia Warner, who created Tenko, into creating it. So, yeah, there's various interesting stories. Um, and also, you know, we've we've been watching a few things about Tenko. We watched the first few, three episodes. Yeah. And we watched the, there's a, there was a drama Connections oh, from a few right, yeah. years ago yeah. talking about Tenko. And the thing that sticks out most for me there is the fact that Ken Riddington, who was the producer in his Infinite Wonder, gathered them all together. And they'd signed a nudity clause, which all apart from one person signed. And I don't know who that one person was. But he gathered them together and said, would you mind going home to your husband slash boyfriend slash partners and say to them that you're not going to be able to shave under your armpits for a while because obviously the women wouldn't have had, had access to razors in the internment camps. To which I think there was a, a, a deep drawing in a breath and it surpri- I'm surprised he got out of the room alive. <laughs> but yes, so that's our... Our sort of World War yes, Two episode at war. done. Yes, glad we sort of managed to pull it all together yes. finally. Next episode, yes, it's all planned out. We know what we're yeah. going to do, and mm. and I'm going to put up the caption. So yes. next episode, 1979. So yeah, we got another theme coming we have. up because it's also it happens to be issue 40. Yes, so and it's 40 all tied years in ago nicely. From 2019 is 1979. Yes, so we'll be looking at various things that. Happened in that year or premiered or, or in that year. Or indeed didn't happen or in, didn't that happen in that year, as the case may be. Right, so thank you for listening, everyone. Yes, hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you again mm-hmm. for episode 40. In October. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 39 of Round the Archives. Starring Martin Holmes, Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings and Paul Chandler. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Dad's Army, The Armoured Might of Lance Corporal Jones was by Jimmy Perry and David Croft. And the producer was David Croft. So yeah, this this is this is a huge a huge thing. And uh, what kind of gas does it run off? Um, well, I've got a book here which mm. I have been quoting from Dad's Army: A Companion yeah. by Paul Carpenter and Tony Pritchard, and it says, due to petrol rationing, many vehicles, both commercial and civilian, were converted to gas. To produce the gas, <laughs> we had to eat some chips. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So, what would the gas? What gas would it be? <laughs> Andrew's gas. <laughs> Try to be of it. Why is he?
being gentlemen. Let's be professional. Okay, what? <laughs> I like the thing where Jones says to Walker that he should stick his finger in his hole. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Um, but I like the thing about um, Jones wants Walker to stick his finger in the hole. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well signed. But I like the thing about Jones says. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone. Hello Warren. Hello Lisa. Hello. Hello. I do impressions. Do you? What do you do impressions of? I just said hello because okay. Warren said hello Lisa, so I oh, said hello. Okay. I do impressions of himself. Yes. <laughs> but stupid boy. It's Thursday, the twenty-fifth of September, nineteen hundred mm-hmm. and sixty-nine. Uh, I'm sorry. It is. <laughs> is it? So thirty years. And a few weeks yes. since the outbreak of World, World War, War II. Two. And BBC One begins the third season of Dad's Army. Okay. So let's just uh, see what we had of interest on that day. Watch with Mother with Pogel's Wood, mm-hmm. Grains of Wheat. Mm-hmm. Pippin and Tog watch the farmers through the hedge. Oh, yeah. Do they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. What do they watch the farmers doing? Doesn't say. Bit of thrashing. <laughs> Uh, Jack and Ori, George Cole tells Dragon Tales. In, do you think he does it in the guise of Arthur Daly? I hope so. Hat on. I don't think so. Blue Peter is Valerie Singleton, John Noakes, and Peter. I Burgess. bet it is. The Railway Children. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, by E. Nesbit, dramatized in seven parts. That's in black and white. <laughs> I just dropped my book. Freddie Treves. It's got Gordon Gostelow in it. Jenny as Agatha. Yes. Gordon Gostelow. Look at the director, it's Gordon Gostelow. Look at the director. John Ringham. Oh, Julia Smith. Yeah. Directed by Julia Smith. Mm. Mag- Magic Roundabout, told by Eric Thompson. Mm-hmm. The Newcomers. Janet has an urgent message for Peter Metcalf. The advertiser colour supplement is published. Debbie Watling's in that, mm-hmm. along with her dad. Mm. Uh, top of the Pops. Let's quickly move on. Dad's Army. <laughs> What's on top of the pops, please? Yeah. And I've just realised that's the wrong one. That's the wrong week. That's the wrong week. That's the wrong week. <laughs> Do you want to look at the right <laughs> week? Stop that to start all over again. <laughs>